more going on at that time. Have you ever read or come across that that book? Joji Quest um, Consolation. No, yeah. um, I'm aware of it. I mean, I know the the vague story. I've had it through a mutual friend of ours who I think knows some of the people in the the people involved and and everything. Yeah, what's your what's your view? <laughs> I, I just sort of throw my hands up in in the air because um it, it is amazing that. Helen Garden has obviously done very well out of that horrible tragedy, and you can only really call it a, a human tragedy uh, in many ways. Mm. Uh, and you know, I, I don't want we don't want to talk about get into it, but the the thing that that I always despair about it is when that happened. There had been for some time the biggest and most vibrant and consistent going on a number of years student movement, student radicalism going on in Australia, not seen since the the early seventies. And we're at a moment where sort of all all contradictions are made. Right? By product of the crisis of contemporary capitalism, this week in class politics, classic fucking boomer, old new left, maintaining the relations of neoliberalism. No capital. No capital. No capital. No no no. no! 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 international, but we're from Canberra. So like At Dole Capital, we're interested in how the past influences the present tactics and strategies of decent people fighting for a fairer society. On today's episode, we're talking about 90s grunge. Uh, Not to be confused with Kurt Cobain, we're talking about socialist activism in Canberra and broadly in Australia in the 90s through to the early 2000s. I'm joined by Jacob. How are you going there, Jacob? G'day, mate. I'm going all right. How are you going? Yeah, fantastic. We we have played with this idea. It's been rather cathartic for me to, to write <laughs> some things down. Um, there are a few people who don't know much about this period, but you know, we, we thought we'd have a yarn about it today. Mm. Um, I mean, for, my, for me, like from my perspective, being a younger person now getting into you know radical left politics in Canberra, uh, there's not that much. Um, you know, like for example, I w- I've been um, doing some reading, particularly today, about one particular grouping, the Socialist Workers' Party, whose um, whole archive has disappeared and they had to go through the, um, the Wayback Machine to find. So some of this stuff isn't that accessible <laughs> to people just getting involved, like the recent history of, of the scene here in Canberra. So but we thought it'd be a good idea to, um, to crack it open and try to pull it apart and explain how things got to be the way they are. Yeah, and I, I think that's, um, we can go into some, there's some really good legacy issues there for people involved in, in things now or becoming to be involved in socialist politics. And they're important, I think, in terms of um, the direction we take in the future. So, look, we, we're going to be talking about the rat bags and cage rattlers of the 90s and the early 2000s in Australia, in particular from Canberra. We're interested in the positives for what people new to socialist politics can take away from this period for today's struggles. And I think we're also interested in talking about what socialists were doing then, both in and outside of the Labor Party and the Greens, and uh, the cool things that they did, which are worth remembering. And being inspired by it in a way that isn't the sort of narcissism you get of the zombie old left group of boomers that still haunt uh, the corridors of conferences and events around the country with uh, wanting to talk about their particular contribution to social change. Uh, the Pride Exchange, in my view, coming from that um, generation, very much overlooked. And I guess that sort of leads into where we want to kick off, doesn't it, Jacob? Yeah, absolutely. Do you want to um, take the reins, get us going? Yeah. All right. So look, the first thing, if we're going to talk about 90s and socialists and uh, we're talking about myths and wanting to crack those myths there, crudely put, the X generation. Uh, according to this sort of mythology that's put around in terms of discussing that recent history, the Hawke, Keating and Howard years, 
were, um, well, really, effectively, they're portrayed as having done bugger all against the march of austerity and the march of conservative politics in the country, uh, especially in Canberra. Groups to the left of Labor and those and those people who were in the Labor and Greens at the time, who were strongly identified by their campaigns at the time, were often presented, and even today you can come across um, this sort of um, rewrite of history as, as crazy or lazy or irrelevant or out of touch or, you know, extremely rude people, um, too connected uh, to universities and uh, in some instances to um, white-collar work. Uh, of course, there's a, there's a game of truth to, to all those things, but the actual history doesn't sort of stack up. So there was much, much more going on in Canberra and uh, then the made-up heroin epidemic and the sad human beings presented by Helen Gardner's Joe Cinque's Consolation. Heroin is so passe, to quote the dandy Warhols, and there definitely was more going on at that time. Have you ever read or come across that, that book? Joe Cinque's um, Consolation? No. Yeah. Um, I'm aware of it. I mean, I know the, the vague story. I've had it through a mutual friend of ours who I think knows some of the people in the the people involved and, and everything. Yeah, what's your what's your view? <laughs> I, I just sort of throw my hands up in, in the air because um, it, it is amazing that Helen Garden has obviously done very well out of that horrible tragedy and you can only really call it a, a human tragedy uh, in many ways. Mm. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't want, we don't want to talk about getting into it, but the, the thing that, that I always despair about it is when that happened, there had been for some time the biggest and most vibrant and consistent going on a number of years student movement, student radicalism going on in Australia, not seen since the, the early 70s. And yet the way uh, Gardner presents Canberra is this middle-class affluence place, basically like your stereotypes reinforced with these affluent middle-class kids um, all feeling a bit alienated and a bit sad deciding to muck around with heroin. The reality was um, far more complex, but there was plenty of other things going on, I guess is my point. When we talk about uh, 90s grunge and its live acts in the ACT, um, the scene for the radical left in 1990, if we go back to the start of that decade, was pretty sad. Myself, I mean, look, I'm, in 1990, I was in year 11. And anyway, I didn't really get politically involved until like 93 in terms of what was going happening. But, but in the college, but... When you look, talk to people around the time and people are older than me, what they talk about was um, that there was a, it was a pretty interesting period with sort of, that we were looking at uh, the collapse, collapsing state capitalist uh, societies overseas. There was the crackdown in Tiananmen Square. That all had far-reaching impacts on politics, um, and particularly the sort of politics that talked about self-activity, equality, and democracy. The neoliberal hegemony, or, you know, uh, they used to call it economic rationalism a lot in, in Australia. I don't know why, but it, it, it appeared unstoppable at time for people. Working class organisation was still coming to terms with its partially self-inflicted history, history-defining defeats of the 1980s. So you saw uh, in Australia there were, look, what's up is people banging on whether uh, the, the deregistration of the BLF or more spectacularly, more, more of the, the big stick really was the... Um, uh, the use of the army to break the pilot strike by the by the Hawke government uh, outside of the income agreement done called the Accord. And look, the the time of what we got in by 1990 is is while there are these big defeats for the the working class in Australia and elsewhere in the Anglophile world and elsewhere, uh, the new left radicals of the 60s and 70s in Australia's um. 1968, if you like, that didn't really happen until well, well into the early 70s, if you think about it. 
by 1990, they'd well and truly retreated to the universities or the academy, as we often often call it. Um, they'd led a, de- a retreat into liberal politics, dressed up as radicalism for orthodox single issues. There's the period of the dominance of um, what was called uh, postmodernism, um, which really did sort of come out. It was a wonderful intellectual retreat for people who came from that generation to run away from this idea that we can um, link struggles together. Uh, there was the regurgitating um, politics of well-meaning liberals dictating the terms for rolling back the economic uh, equality gains of previous decades. Like This was all going on in a retreat of uh, connecting issues, of actually being avidly against people, you know, forming alliances or having a drink at the public here together with different issues if they can, did consider themselves radical at all. Socialist politics was, was absolutely derided uh, in many ways, very much a minority um, appetite. And there was a lot of apathy everywhere. So look, Canberra in that situation was very much like the rest of the world. I think, and also another thing to note is that, like, it kind of just goes into what you were saying about um, the new left. That as we, as the nineties opens, what you find is, I think, a lot of the new left and its various groupings kind of coming to the end of a particular cycle, you know, institutionally. Yeah. Like, for example, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, the zombie corpse of the CPA finally kind yeah. of wheezed its last dying breath. And you also had a little bit earlier in the, in the sort of 80s, um, the Socialist Workers' Party disaffiliating from the Fourth International and kind of going its own way and moving into you know, having its industrial turn where it goes to particularly Wollongong, gets involved with, you know, an attempt to start organising blue-collar workers much in that sort of older Communist Party style of rank-and-file organising. So the old existing pillars of the left in Australia were either in complete disarray or, you know, moving into new ventures. And so I think the start of the 90s feels like a bit of a confused, kind of open Time. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's spot on. And look, and when we're talking about the SWP, we're not talking about the uh, fairly well ups and downs, successful, long-running organisation um, of the same name from uh, the United Kingdom. Uh, we're talking about what was uh, to be the forerunner organisation for a group called the Democratic Socialist Party, who then later on um, basically went and spectacularly, um, yeah, rebadged themselves the Socialist Alliance. But we'll talk about that a little bit later mm. on. We'll but, you know, they, they, they were an interesting organisation, the old SWP and, and the little groupets that came out of that because they were socialist groups and they did do some things. And, that, and they were some, there was some continuity with some revolutionary socialist politics going mm. on in the sense that there were people who did um, uh, take seriously some of the, uh, the writings of Leon Trotsky and his um, uh, descendants, I guess, in terms mm. of thinkers. But yeah. It's worth drawing attention to that just because, um, because we're going to come eventually to Socialist Alliance and stuff in the 2000s. It's worth just uh, noting that um, that particular grouping, its roots go all the way back to the anti-Vietnam war protests and coming out of mm. um, student groups like Resistance, the publication. And yeah, so this is like, there's a long sort of broken, messy continuity of history here. We are really going all the way back in a way to, to May 1968. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And look, you know, we can talk about in, in future shows, we might want to go yeah. back and look at the, the legacy of the, the anti-Stalinist uh, left. After the setting up the Communist Party of Australia, very quickly there were the anti-Stalinist socialists who found themselves kicked out as a result of the, you know, the defeat of, I guess, the more democratic current. But anyway, that's for another show. But look, where, where we kick off in Canberra, look, it's, look, Canberra is, as always, I love saying, it's the place where anything can happen but normally doesn't. Except in the 90s, there, there are lots of things that did. And uh, we'll, we'll run through some examples of, of why it was a really interesting and very much a worthwhile period for 
uh, radical socialist politics where you know, Canberra was absolutely in the thick of it in terms of um, things that were going on. 1991 saw, and that was a benchmark event, I guess, for the left in Australia, because it was the largest uh, mass picket of a, an event or an, a sort of uh, militant event that people could remember since the, the 1970s. Now, what it was about, there was a, a mass picket um, of what, what's called the, the ADEX Arms Expo. It was led by uh, radicals, and really, it really did bring together some some interesting thinkers and activists who had, were coming out of the 80s period. Uh, people were talking about the military-industrial complex uh, in a real way. And in Canberra, what it did was it, it galvanised what had been a pretty dormant radical activist politics that uh, wanted to shut stuff down that they didn't agree with, and, and knew it was actually right to to try to stuff it down. That, that you know. It wasn't acceptable that arms sellers were going to be set up in Canberra, right? Mm. So, and that it wasn't all just about um, splitting ears about who had the better narrative or narratives are terrible or you know the, the postmodern rubbish, I guess. Mm. Um, look, it was it was a brutal pick. It was one of the most violent ones, uh, not since the nineteen seventies uh, in in Canberra and probably in Australia at the time. Uh, at times, there were at least over a thousand people involved in picketing. Uh, there were heaps of police involved. Yeah, there were mass arrests. There was all sorts of police brutality. It was uh, look, made national and international news. It was was fantastic. And I mean, I guess it was obviously not people getting hurt. Fantastic, but the fact that it highlighted what was going on. And and look, never since then has the Australian state felt brave enough to actually try another event of its kind in Australia to actually try to normalise the selling of, of arms if you like. So uh, that was a pretty amazing legacy we've got from that. But also the, the people involved in that really were radicalised by that and really did give a shot in the arm to the, the socialist groups at the time that were running around doing things. And I guess even the socialists were sort of disconnected and doing things in parliamentary organisations as well. Uh, just having a, a skim through this book by um, Ian, uh, Ian McIntyre. I'm not sure if there's any relation to Stuart McIntyre. I, I think not. <clears throat> you know, he was uh, there at the, uh, the ADEX 91 demo and um, yeah. he's written a really good book about it. And he gives like he gives some um, interesting context for the background of it because there had been um, attempted blockades and, and protests of the arms fair for several years leading up to 91, which had you know mm. occurred, but not, not been anywhere near as successful. So interesting context, I suppose, particularly being the fall of the Soviet bloc, again, like the collapse of the Soviet bloc, because what happened was before 91, the global arms trade was kind of you know in the West, happily going along and then all of a sudden the market was completely flooded by a fire sale of cheap soviet weapons um and so that i think massively kind of ramped up the political economic pressures in the you know the global arms industry and so all of a sudden the impetus for uh, arms manufacturers to really start pushing their their wares especially for countries like australia which kind of exist on the weird kind of periphery of the western asia that impetus was really strong so he writes despite the nation facing no external threats the um the federal aop government in line with the cooksey report of 86 increased domestic spending on the military to the point where it consumed eight billion dollars a year or 24 million dollars a day not including military subsidies and military aid to foreign countries by 1991 Um, this represented 9.3 percent of the federal budget outstripping spending on education uh, which was 7.5 percent and running a close second to health at 11%. Uh, 
So this is happening in the context of a massive also increase in arms spending by the Australian government. You know? mm. um, yeah, and it was also at the time of its peak neoliberalism going mm. on with the Hawke-Keating government. Well, by the time, I'm trying to remember what I can't remember. Was it 92? We lost Hawke. We got Keating. Keating goes on to have to fight the 93 election. But yeah, it's, it, is, it is quite amazing. <laughs> yeah, you know that that amount of state intervention in terms of selling guns and yeah. arms and, and things. Yeah, yeah, but they won, so they had to call off the uh, the event. And like you said, it was two decades or something before anything like ADEX, um, you know, as a kind of uh, arms bazaar was attempted in Australia again. So it's like a huge early victory in the nineties for these kinds of you know movement politics where it, you've got people from disparate groups or people who are you know independent socialists coming together and taking part in these actions as students or as workers yeah. and it forms the basis for you know their radicalization and then their increasing engagement with organized political groups yeah no, that's right out of that it really did yeah i guess for a cater that was coming through at the time it gave them a, a nice blooding if you like and i can still remember people who are a little bit older than me who um, for them it was a really defining thing Mm. And they learn a lot out of it and we gain some confidence out of it too. But like I said before, I think mean, a lot of their politics was very much about, they were very militant in a sense. They didn't see the point in just debating the ideas. It was like, if these people are going to have a, a, an event or a meeting in town, well, we're going to turn up and we're not mm. just going to turn up and stand away from it and hold a sign quietly. We're going to actually go and make a lot of noise and honestly, maybe make a lot of noise. We might even go and try to shut the meeting down, you know? Mm. Um, uh, some pretty, yeah, pretty gutsy mm. stuff at that time. I, Another interesting thing that um, McIntyre points out, which is kind of worth mentioning, is that he, he talks about how, on the one hand, it did radicalise a lot of people and really activate a lot of people who were involved. But on the other hand, it created a lot of burnout. Um, mm. A lot of people, I think, were pretty intimidated by the violence, the police, the police violence that they, that they experienced yeah. on the lines in the protest. And yeah. so I wonder if that might have had as well a kind of um, the effect of leading up the, the far left, you know, in Canberra, that a lot of people who probably took part in ADEX and found, you know, they couldn't stomach the violence mm. would have taken that as a, a moment to, you know, go move into either the Greens or the um, the Labor Party. Yeah, might have, well, look, there might have been some of that, but I mean, I'm sort of speculating that the people I knew who had participated in it, um, I knew people who gravitated towards a social revolutionary socialist group, or there were people who went into the Greens, but sadly, the Gamber and uh, the Labor Party was just not a, not fit for purpose uh, in 1990 for radical politics, and I mean, we'll maybe talk about that later, but it was mm. not the organisation to go and join. There was no home there, if you like. Yep. Uh, if you, you were a bit raging at that, the, you know, the excesses of what was going on. Um, there's that famous incident of the um, always, uh, always, always, um, the bit of singing of Life of Brian, it's always look on the bright side of life at, at you know, one of the late night pickets and things like that. Yeah. There are still some people around who, you know, around the scene and stuff. Maybe it might be interesting for another show to talk to them about ADEX, but I think it does set the scene for, for as things progressed on into camera. And we've got to remember too that. Canberra's always been had that interesting position because it's the nation's capital. As a result of that, there are often uh, mainstream political parties who want to have electoral, they want to have media stunts here, or you'll have people from interstate who decide that, oh, we've got to come to Canberra to make our point, and they'll do that. Um, so there were a lot of people from interstate who took part mm. in ADEX, but it did give a shot in the arm to local movement. Look, in, in 92, things sort of like, yeah, there's a little bit of, uh, I guess, in terms of the next sort of big um, thing that happened was 92 when Jeff Kennett uh, gets into the Victorian government. Now, he, he ran a very nasty, it was like what Howard did, but probably worse in many ways. Uh, when Jeff Kennett got in, you could only describe it as uh, probably the most radical 
um, state government that, that is probably Australia had ever, had ever seen at that point, I'd say. Mm-hmm. He sacked 26,000 teachers, uh, for example. They, they shut down um, tons of schools. They sacked thousands of public servants, workers, civil servants. Uh, they privatised just about anything they could get their hands on and was thoroughly anti-union. Um, unions were really lessening on their laurels at that time in the sense that um, they hadn't protected themselves for the uh, situation of a conservative and militantly um, aggressive anti-union employer getting in who proceeded to ban payroll, uh, made it impossible for payroll collections for union memberships to happen. So all of a sudden there was a whole bunch of unions who literally lost tens of thousands of members overnight when they did that. They weren't prepared to be able to have their members signed up to their own payroll deductions for their own, um, you know, for their own paycheck, yeah? So that was just an example there. Really full-on stuff um, happened down in Victoria. There were some rather militant occupations. Of, you know, there was a, there was a famous school, uh, it was Richmond Secondary College. There was a, an occupation there. Um, the far left very much led that one with some... That was an interesting one. But why it's interesting is um, Kennett comes to Canberra in uh, actually the other bit, and I'll get pause about Canberra. The other thing about Kennett getting in is sort of helps galvanise the the radical, so the uh, radical left that wanted to go and be quite militant in their opposition. So it was Richmond Secondary College occupation, um, but also the, the student movement there is galvanised. You had the Kennett thing happening in Victoria, but you also had um, federally where Keating's gotten in and they've gone and you know, their white papers not coming out of the government at the time. Are they saying we should scrap Aus study? Their discussion papers there from the government at the time are saying we should bring in uh, upfront fees, not just for, you know, like they play with this idea of um, postgraduate courses, but also for undergraduate courses. So there was a very big demo about uh, involving over 3,000 odd students in, uh, it was in 92. And um, three weeks after that, when I had that protest, uh, a bunch of people were arrested and thrown in the back of a, a cop car. A whole lot of people surrounded that cop car and they, they basically, the police had to negotiate their way out of the crowd and they released the, the people from the cop car. The dawn raid I, uh, strategy of, you know, um, pulling people out of their beds at 5.30 in the morning and yeah, yeah, that's it's an old it's an old tactic that's been around for a very long time. But we, I think, at that time that hadn't happened for a very long time. You'd, you'd have to go back decades since there'd been something where the police had been sent in to dawn rain a bunch of known um, militants or you know socialists or activists to lock them up before something happened or, or punish them, you know, make an example of them. So it became known as the Aus Study Five. So what you had is they were socialists. They were all members of the same organisation at the time, uh, the International Socialist Organisation. And they were arrested in dawn raids and they faced really quite serious crimes, uh, you know, freeing a prisoner and uh, they were charged with, you know, organising a riot and all sorts of really weird and wonderful stuff. Look, it took two years, but there was a national campaign to see their, their uh, charges drop, which was very successful on the far left and also was actually managed to connect with the more mainstream, <laughs> if you like. And there were many organisations who got behind that campaign because people got horrified of this idea that um, police could come and, you know, pick people up weeks after an event where really, like, you can't, how can you charge five people for something that involved hundreds? So that was a win. That, that galvanised that group and other far-left groups. Uh, and I'm using the term far-left loosely because you can mainly talking about socialists, but there are other currents and groupings and things doing stuff. But look, that combination of uh, Kennett and Keating's neoliberalism built left groups at the ANU, which was um, historically a bit of a hotbed for activism, mainly because the ANU compared to the University of Canberra, it always had 
uh, I guess the causes that you'd expect um, well encouraged I guess critiques of what was going on in the world I guess something about the what people were learning might have had partly to do with that radicalism that I knew but I don't think it was the only thing obviously not so what happens is in 93 Kenneth's invited to the ANU by the Young Liberal Club and for me that was my first militant demo that I, I'd ever really been to I've been to things when I was a kid but you know you'd go to a teacher's strike or something like that in the 80s you know <laughs> mm, set the scene for us you're there full head of hair you know, <laughs> yeah full head of hair yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was a restaurant called I don't know what it was like called the Valleys or it was an Italian restaurant there it was on campus it was next to a pharmacy but you'd, you'd go into the uh, it basically in the union court this type of thing so the plan was for Kenneth to be driven in and then let go and um, go into the building but what had happened was um, a picket of probably at this when they kicked off there might have been 50 and people like there were the drums being rolled through union court mm-hmm. big oil empty <laughs> I can remember them setting up and thinking what the hell is going on right and these drums were being set up and people were banging drums and making, you know, these big empty oil drums and whatever. And people were making lots of noise and then more and more people joined them. And then as it went on, the, the crowd sort of swelled a bit more. So what you had was this really bizarre. There might have been no more than, I don't know, maybe 200 odd sort of participating in this sort of really loud, boisterous thing already, linking arms and the police were, you know, turned up a bit late and, you know, <laughs> and quite weren't. I don't think they were ready for it either. You know, asking people to, you know, move on. I think at one point they have a megaphone out to sort of tell them they're all dispersed and all this sort of stuff but a massive crowd like three times the number of people watching because I think at that point no one had seen anything quite like that at you for a long time people may have been at the uni for some years had never seen anything like it and it was it was a pretty defining uh, event for people Kenneth arrived uh, he got out of the car the cops had to push their way through people and had to remove people and he was pelted with eggs on the way in and you know it was all great it was a it was a wonderful day I don't think, I'm not sure if he ever got hit or not, but it was really quite an interesting uh, event because um, I think it caused for a lot of people at the time the whole thing about, well, he's going to speak, like surely he should be allowed to speak and people shouldn't get in his way. And as opposed to the other one, I was like, well, this guy is responsible for literally ruining thousands of people's lives and destroying schools and, you know, trying to smash unions and things like that. So it was a pretty um, defining thing. We have a long history in Australia of well-deserved eggings. Um, and despite that, every time it happens, the Australian media and, you know, commentator class act like it's the worst thing ever to happen. It's the first time, like as if there isn't, you know, this like long established tradition of egging dickheads. Yeah, yeah. Well, Billy Hughes. With, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Beginning with Billy Hughes. Yeah. Hugh, I, yeah. I love this story, um, just as a little <laughs> side note, that Billy Hughes actually yeah. formed the AFP. Because when yeah, he was, yeah. he was when he was egged in Queensland, he yeah. <laughs> attempted to personally order the Queensland police to defend him against to arrest the eggers and defend him, and they they yeah. outright refused. <laughs> and so he yeah. formed the AFP because the um, the Queensland police wouldn't follow his instructions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's a great it's a great story. Yeah. And there is there is definitely that uh, tradition of people getting egged who have uh, onerous opinions. And look, I, that was uh, an interesting one. Then look at '93, the Keating government just starts kicking up, it ramping up its um, position on further deregulating. That's the neoliberal speak, deregulating university funding. So they they um, allow universities for the first time to start charging fees for postgraduate courses. Uh, Australia up to that point, Hawke had bought in HEX, which when HEX was which is higher education contributions. Scheme, which was seen as a, I mean, you get the name contribution. The idea was that, well, these students who are going to go off and become middle class, whatever it is, that they can make a contribution because, you know, they should pay more because they're going to get better paid. <laughs> this type of thing was the sort of the, the right wing sort of rubbish argument that was thrown around. Hex, when I was first bought in, was like 240 bucks. Uh, it's now, I mean, what, we still per have course it. or? 
No, no, for the year, like it was like Jesus Christ, bucks. <laughs> it, was, it was like a couple hundred bucks. That was that was how much it yeah. was. Holy jumping Caesar's catfish! Yeah, and yeah, look, you know, and credit to the guys in the late eighties, like when Dawkins was one of the main architects of this thing. Late 80s, there were pretty decent-sized demos, but they, they thought they could try it. This is the difference. Um, in the 80s, early late 80s, they thought they could challenge it in the courts, and, well, no great surprise there. They lost in the courts because who owns the courts, yeah? But, uh, you know, it was really the, the militant sort of demos are the things that sort of really stopped a lot of this, um, the, the steamroll in its track. So they decided to, you know, unions can charge what they want. Now, in, in that background, and also the great betrayal, I guess, in 93, is there you are with Keating and the Labor, Parliamentary Federal Labor Party and the Labor movement. You know, by 92, they've all of a sudden had a, an epiphany for their left-wing credentials and their, you know, rejecting of nasty market stuff. And um, particularly the Labor movement, who very much saw that they, they were going to be in big trouble with the Liberals that had gotten in, because the Liberals had basically you know, uh, under John Houston, they actually published all the thing, horrible things that they were going to do, which was going to meet huge mistake. Uh, the fervor. <laughs> huge, you know, big mistake. And, and governments ever since then in Australia have learned not to tell people too much. Um, otherwise, they, they might, you know, to either get stuffed and not vote for you. But what, this is what we got. We had the Great Betrayal. Keating gets elected. This is our, you know, campaign talking about what the goods and services tax, the consumption tax was going to do, about what the anti-law, you know, these anti-union laws were going to do. But all these sort of equity, you know, equality issues, and then turns around and deregulates universities further. So that's what happened. And at the time, people saw it as a, the thin edge of the wedge in '93, and it sort of provides the the background for um, what then continued on for the throughout the rest of the '90s into the early thousands in the university pod. But it also affected sort of a broader, I guess, university students at that point were very much at the the front end of fighting against the neoliberal agenda. So um, corporatising universities was well and truly um, on the cards and having universities run for profit and also effectively due through um, introducing um, the collection of revenue privately, um, undermining and defunding areas of higher education where I guess for some time, for a little while, there had been sites of disciplines that were able to be critical of what was going on in civil society. We live now in Australia where unless you've got private benefactors or particular organisations going to throw money at you, um, you're not going to have people supported to go and research and develop ideas and then participate and say, hey, how about a bit about this? We now have people um, are beholden to who pays the fee as opposed to another argument, which is, well, we should actually provide um, opportunities for people to develop and be critical via progressive tax. Yeah? There's been some interesting articles coming out in the conversation and stuff about the idea, reviving the idea of the public university, which uh, is interesting, especially now that we're moving into some possible Cold War that we'll be in the middle of, um, <laughs> yeah, where the, yeah, um, the, the steady supply <laughs> of full fee paying Chinese students is probably going to fucking dry up pretty quick. Yeah, so the yeah. unis will have have to deal with a, a complete crisis. No, that's that's right. And, and the perversity of, how, say, having the Chinese or US governments uh, indirectly involved in um, basically fighting financing think yep. tanks for propagating their own, like, how great are we mm. uh, at Australia universities? Uh, yep. It's pretty pretty sick stuff. Look, 94 is uh, is when things really take a sharp turn uh, around that. So 93 sort of leads it in. 94 at ANU, the, the ANU introduced what was to be called an upfront fee for what was called a legal workshop. It was basically a course that law students had to do as part of their final year to go and practice law. So it was, uh, it was a all, mandatory um, course that you had to take. Yeah, you, yeah. you had to do it in the ACT if you were going to practice law. Yeah. And at the time, the initial fee was, was proposed as uh, $15,000. 
there was no loan scheme for it, right? So, like, you had to go and do it. So it immediately really set the hackles off for, for a lot of people. But it, they also went to, they wanted to privatise a couple of some other postgrad courses as well. So that was the example of the, the thin edge of the wedge uh, involved at the time. Um, law students went, like, you know, they, they went nuts. Like, they collected, look, literally hundreds of signatures of petitions were collected. There were big meetings. The most successful thing that happened with that is that they ended up connecting with the rest of the campus and an argument was made and I guess the activists, the socialists at the time were out prosecuting that argument about saying, finish of the wedge, this is going to be the end of, well, inverted commas, free education in Australia. It was going to be the end of accessible um, education that no matter where your parents came from, that you could get a university education. And that sort of um, then kicked off this, this pretty amazing campaign uh, at the ANU. And they had big rallies. Uh, there were sit-ins of the arts faculty, for example. They, they, there was an open day. They went and had a, a sit-in in, uh, where there was meant to be a big speech for people to come to the, during a, an open day. That sort of shut that one down. Uh, the, there was a debate raging amongst the, the, the radicals about, you know, how do we do something a bit more decisive? And this is where the idea of occupying the, the chancery came up. And there was uh, another protest involving hundreds of students. And um, they, yeah, stormed the Chancery Building. Uh, it was something that hadn't happened since 1972. It was the last time there'd been an occupation at ANU. And that uh, occupation of that admin building went for nine days. It was the longest one that had been happened, like I said, since the early 70s. Mm. There were um, literally hundreds of students participated, but it's hard to tell how many people took part because it was such an egalitarian thing. People would come and go. Uh, people were still doing study. People were like, and a lot of it, quite a bit of it actually ended up having, I think the tail end of it was actually during the, um, the term, term break. But it was a pretty amazing thing. And people who participated in it were quite radicalised by it because they had set up groups. They, you know, they had to coordinate food and there was outreach. There were people who went out every day to shopping centres and they collected, they collected thousands of signatures against this fee. They, the most effective thing that happened was the, they, they organised. There were socialists that argument, organized, uh, made the argument like, let's shut down the mail. So they, there was a picket uh, launched against the mail at the ANU and that was probably the most effective thing, shutting down the mail at the ANU. Uh, and they went and also made a deputation to the unions and through what was called the Trades and Labor Council at the time, they, at the time, they were able to get backing, endorsement and backing for that picket. It was actually a union uh, endorsed picket at the ANU and, and that was really effective in terms of putting huge amounts of pressure on the ANU. Um, there were groups for, you know, for media and security and uh, many other things. There were, there were assemblies held every day where literally you would have, you know, over 100 odd people participating in meetings every morning and then every night about what they were doing and where it was going and all those sort of things there were negotiations going on all the time with the with the administration when it when it was broken up uh, after the nine days there were more protests afterwards really big big rallies as a another occupation in the building which then ended up with literally hundreds of people being dragged out of the building by just about all the cops and camera uh, was pretty amazing in the end it was well it was successful uh, it wasn't a defeat, uh, but it certainly wasn't a comprehensive win. The postgrad courses that they wanted to bring in were dropped. Uh, the 15000 fee got dropped to uh, 5000 with a loan. Uh, so it wasn't they didn't defeat the whole thing. And what it kicked off was a national movement against fees. And it really did characterise things for the next few years. But I guess for socialists, it was the key thing that um, two socialist groups were key to leading. As they, uh, they, we mentioned the SWP before. Their 
organisation at that point, and then they'd changed the name to the Democratic Socialist Party. They had a youth wing, which they called themselves Resistance. They sold the newspaper called the Green Left Weekly. Uh, and their main rival was a group called the International Socialist Organization. And they were the two key groups uh, in terms of really very much leading the debates in the student movement for a number of years and also in other things. Do you want to just like give a little um, characterization of these two groups and where they came from and what their ideological differences were? I guess in terms of the, the DSP and the ISO, well, the DSP were, if, if there's such thing as legacy politics, like... They, they, they had different times like bragging about the fact that they'd um, been part of what was called the Fourth International, mm-hmm. real Cold War politics stuff. So that they, they were basically, you know, oh, well, you know, we used to be Orthodox Trotskyists, right? Which for people out there is basically groups or, um, that for some reason hatched their hat to fairly uncritically um, following the writings and um, theories of, of the revolutionary uh, Leon Trotsky. Now, that's fine, but come the 90s, it's all very problematic, you know, in terms of that, that orthodox stuff. Now, they ditched some of that. Uh, they moved on. to the, they, Their politics were very much defined by, I guess you'd call it a, sometimes it'd be caricatured as sort of soft Stalinism was with what some people used to, to define it, but very much they, they backed a lot of libertarian um, liberation theology staff. They, they were very much, um, you know, consistently anti-imperialist, I guess, like they had a, consistent position about supporting East Timor and and, um, and democracy in Indonesia. You can't fault them on that at all. And West Papua, for example, they, they, they did things like that. Um, and, uh, sort of Cuba and Nicaragua yeah, right. being the key, yeah. you know, um, inspirations for them. Yeah, Cuba, Cuba was one of their defining things, which was like, you know, it was like a, a brag point. They're like, oh, well, you know, we support Cuba. It's like, well, that led them off always inevitably an argument with, say, you know, other socialists about, well, how can you say Cuba's socialist? I mean... Right. You know, just because it's things are run by the state, it's not democratic. There's no <laughs> mm. workers have, you know, that's like, yes, defend Cuba against imperial US imperialism and the blockade, sure. But, you know, how can you run around and say this thing socially, you know, mm. a, a, a you know, a communist or a socialist society. So that was often where, you know, those sort of arguments and in some ways really splitting hairs if you think about it, because like mm. in and when when day to day stuff is like, well, what's what's the really big deal there? But you know, very important for young people at the time. The DSP's relationship to the Labor Party is kind of interesting as well, because earlier on in the seventies, as an Orthodox Trotskyist organisation, they were um, engaged in sort of entryism in the Labor Party, where the idea yeah. the idea would be that that's like the best place for um, communist revolutionaries is in building united front yeah. uh, organizations and and connections with um you know social democratic parties uh and then when they broke from trotskyism i think in the late 80s i want to say maybe mid mid, mid 80s yeah i'm not sure they reversed, yeah. yeah but they basically they came to reverse that idea um and importantly i suppose for our history here come to the view that what was necessary was a, a left political alternative party that could pose a challenge to the ALP from the left, basically. And so that's how you have the emergence of them as a, a political force actually running in elections in Australia. Yeah, I think one way to think about them too was the, because of the, the collapse of um, the Stalinist CPA and the SPA, you know, so there was the Maoists and then the, the tankies, you know, the, the European line. They're gone, right? So I think in some ways the DSP was kind of like wanting to be a, um, a benefactor out of that collapse. But in terms of being a benefactor of that 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 tradition, what they did was actually they were just copying some of the, the, the worst things, if you like, yeah? 
Yep. Like to the point of like, oh, we, we've got a youth organism. And, you know, they'd always sort of blow themselves up bigger than they actually were. So it was like, it was always very contradictory. On the one hand, wanting to run campaigns and lead campaigns, but at the same time, so tightly controlling their campaign committees, not wanting to play nice with other groups. Uh, that was one thing that they often used to characterise it. Um, but also um, their sectarianism was always pretty amazing towards the people, in the, well, towards the Labor Party and the Labor Party generally, or you're even the Greens or anything. Basically, it was like, oh, we're, we're, there's a little purity sort of stuff going on, which was um, not particularly helpful. Yeah, but, but they, you know, you can't fault that they were incredibly active. Their main rival, uh, the main rival organisation was the ISO, uh, which had merged out of some different groupings, more due to regionalism in Australia than anything else. But when the ISO comes along, there's a there's a period of time the ISO is quite united. It's got a very very clear critique. It comes out of uh, tradition, looking at uh, and supporting some of the, I guess what's called neo Trotskyism. I guess you could call it the DSP a neo Trotskyist thing. Firstly, I, I find I find it problematic to talk about Trotskyism in the 90s or whatever because it's, it's kind of dumb, you know. Uh, but the ISO, they they basically believed, um, they followed the, the UK Socialist Workers' Party view, which led this group called the International Socialist Tendency, who was also an international grouping, who cohered mainly about two key bits of theory. And the one was, first one was state capitalism, and the second one was about, um, I think it was about income and arms. But I mean, look, state capitalism, I think, is the most interesting and the most useful one. What state capitalism enabled the ISO to do, and which is, I think, in many ways, in a number of years now, has become quite a mainstream view, is the guy Tony Cliff, who was he wasn't the first person to write about it. There are others that had also coined the, the term by the, the late 40s. When Tony Cliff starts writing about, it, he's one of the lead theory guys from way back in the in the 50s. He talks about that you need to understand the Soviet Union as basically one big incorp- one big corporation, and that it's a state, but it's capitalist. And the, the state bit is like, yes, on the face of things, the, the people own it, you know, in name. It's owned by the state. But in practice, it accumulates wealth, accumulates materials and all the rest of it, and it competes on the world stage, yeah? So what confused people like in the, I guess, the, the more orthodox Trotskyists and the, the DSPs of the world or whatever um, was basically you start talking about state ownership. It's like, well, if it's state-owned, right, it doesn't mean you, you shouldn't be talking about, you know, people used to get in semantics like, is it, is it a d- uh, deformed worker state? Is it a, you know, like it's just crazy stuff. Like people talk, used, to, they used to talk about Vietnam and somehow, you know, we know it's not, it's not a freaking communist country, is it? it was really, it's become very self-evident, particularly, say, China for us in this day and age to actually go, anyone with half a brain with enough uh, thought to sit down and think about it would know that China is not a communist country. It's not even a socialist country. But, you know, there are definitely state-run industries, but there's certainly plenty of state-run industries that are running around at the behest of the ruling class there that is accumulating wealth and competing on the world stage. So state capitalism was a liberating um, sort of theory for the ISO, I think. That's, that meant that they didn't actually have to go and defend what had happened in Russia. If anything, they'll there be able to say, well, actually, fuck what happened in the Soviet Union. Like, the workers should have gotten rid of them earlier on or they didn't have to be beholden to answering questions about horrible things happening in, in um, Vietnam or 
Cuba or, you know, elsewhere. So they were interesting with that. I guess those are the sort of the key theory points that were the, the key big P political Cold War theory legacy that they had. So what's the ISO's attitude to uh, electoral politics uh, in, the, in the sort of early to mid-90s? I think that there was two things going on. The ISO, I think, had a fairly um, mature view at the time, that which was we are a small organisation. Yes, uh, socialists should participate and be involved in elections as an important opportunity to relate to people. And yes, we will, you know, call for a vote for whatever. But they very much held this view of um, critical support in terms of recognising that they were not in a position to actually, one, run candidates and two, not being a, what you'd call a mass party, yeah? Uh, the DSP, um, for example, however, very much had socialists should vote for us because we are socialists and we have this wonderful view of the world and therefore, you know, you should just vote for mm. us and the Labor, Labor Party are, you know, social fascists, whatever. Okay. So that's the election. Literally, those were the differences. They meant that the ISO, um, people who were in the ISO could actually go and relate to radicalising and militant people who were being drawn to radical politics, but also to socialist politics and also those that were in Labor wanted were either going to join the Labor Party or were in the Labor Party. I know in Canberra, there was no really no such thing as a Labor young Labor left at all. A couple of individuals and that was what it was like. Um, so they, 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 that sort of gives the background of where, where things kicked off further from 94. I mean, I think the thing is about 94, those socialist groups, like they will and truly kicked above their weight. And it really, those two groups, I, I would argue, set the scene for a lot of the extra parliamentary politics going on in, in metropolitan cities for, for some time. The campaigns they had against uh, what effectively was anti-corporatization of universities, uh, it went on to mobilize, mobilize tens of thousands of students and their supporters. Literally every year, there were thousands of people would take part in national protests every year. This all went on till 2001. There were some ebbs and flows with it, but I mean, I want to give you an idea of the scale of it. 97, there were over 30 occupations of campus administration buildings. There were like 20, 17 of them all coordinated on one national day of action. That's 17 university campuses around the country. And some involved small numbers of people. Others were, were literally come off the marches of thousands of people. They are all in response to the latest manifestation under Howard of trying to bring in upfront fees for undergraduates. Um, that militancy stopped the introduction of upfront fees at that time. It halted it for a couple of three few years. It was very important. But that wouldn't have happened if 94 in ANU hadn't happened, yeah? Yep. Uh, that same militancy, I guess, at ANU we saw in 97, there were um, plans to the, the, uh, the classics department. Classics is still there at ANU. Um, the only reason why I stared partly is literally there were, it was got caught up big cuts to the arts faculty in uh, 97. There was a massive reaction from obviously from the workers there and tertiary workers but also from students there was a big strikes that um shut the campus down we had really well, it was a smaller number but i remember participating with about 35 or probably about 40 of us who participated in trying to actually lock up one of the university lecture halls where the some of the right-wing um scabs for tertiary lecturers who you know neoliberal teaching economic sort of guys had insisted on on putting their classes on and even, you know, putting trying to put, oh, you have to turn up to this or you're going to lose some point or whatever. So there was pretty full on because I remember, you know, we, they're picketing, the punches were thrown and all the rest of it. But that was pretty wild. But that happened in, that was um, something that happened in 97 in November. And in 98, after 97, when they, the Libs, 
tried to rebadge this stuff, they started talking about a voucher scheme. There were coordinated sit-ins of, of Liberal and National Party MP officers around the country. So that, that gives you an idea of what's going on in the student movement, but also gives you um, where, where it went from there. Because I, I think we touched on before about those socialist groups. What was going on with the, the anti-corporate student stuff uh, led to all sorts of things, galvanising things around, I guess, international solidarity, if you like. Uh, and it, it sort of shaped things around the Free East Timor and West Papua campaign. Uh, democracy for Burma uh, in Indonesia were, were you know popular there was there were quite you know consistent activities and events going on during this time the 90s well into the early thousands the uranium mining uh, threatened at Jabaluka mine that was probably a you know in, in and of itself a really uh, amazing campaign that you had um, people learnt from the situation of like on one hand there were people who went out to go and blockade and then pick at this place but there were literally huge demonstrations in in, um, in Melbourne and and in other major capital cities, and Melbourne in particular. They they were massive, and they connected, you know, Greens, environmentalists, and so you know, a very broad cross section of the community against uranium mining. And it was fan, that was a fantastic thing that happened at the time. Um, we then had, you know, there was lots of militancy around. I guess the second wave anti-union laws, first wave anti-union laws, the the Liberals brought in. For much of the 90s, um, you couldn't go to a conference in, you know, around student stuff or any, even, you know, the broader left type things about people talking about, oh, oh what happened in Canberra or mm. what, you know, because there'd always been for a number of years something significant um, during that period. There were often uh, things kicking. That's partly because there was a, there were groups that were well and truly kicking above their weight. They were able to pull off protests of a couple of hundred by themselves. They didn't need you know, official backing to do stuff. If if they knew that the, the the issue was hot enough, they could actually go and mobilise quite a quite a considerable number of people. Very interesting, you know, uh, in today's context. Uh, there's nothing like that around today, so it gives you an idea of where that went. But the key thing here is that the, look, uh, there were radical students that connected to socialist groups, which shaped the strategies and tactics and ideas of campaigns and movements that went beyond Cold War politics of um, the neoliberal straitjackets of the time. You know, I guess I guess lastly that. That period there, it's something to be quite proud of uh, for people from Canberra that a lot of these things um, that took place in Canberra helped influence and kick off campaigns in bigger cities with more political infrastructure. Um, so well and truly punch it above their weight was what I, I took from being in, having been involved in that. I found a pretty quite oh, a good yeah. um, like honours thesis on the um, the ninety six Parliament House, right? Um, oh yeah, by Luke D. Yes, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, what, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you know Luke or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Luke, yeah. Luke was one of the. He was one of the the ISO guys. Yeah, right. Uh, at the time, he yeah. um, he teaches at Sydney Uni. Uh, oh, cool. Yeah, his um, yeah, good guy, good guy. Yeah, yeah but I I, I remember I, I I proofread his his thesis. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's yeah, what, yeah, that's what I've been reading. It's uh, a great. It's a yeah, yeah. It's actually a really fun read. Uh, in particularly in parts, but I, I think the key thing I find his his critique that um, basically the labour movement was just not fit, just absolutely not fit for leadership. Their complete just fucking cluelessness as to, to as to what to do with the campaign and where to go. Were interesting, mm. but um, yeah, no, it's true. Mm. So yeah, let's let's get into um, ninety six, the Parliament House riot of ninety six. If you're um, from Canberra and uh, you're on the left, you uh, I suppose if you're of a certain age, you'll know about this. But um, when it occurred, I was um, <clears throat> I was th- uh, three years old, so I actually only had a vague you know knowledge of this event um, happening. Yeah. What it was was this, this event um, planned by the ACTU called the Cavalcade, Cavalcade to Canberra. Canberra um, yeah. 
So the background to this is that in May 96, um, you had the end of the 13 years of um, Labor Party governance, um, the Hawke and Keating governments, and John Howard, uh, after a long stint in opposition, finally wins um, wins an election. And uh, it was like immediately kind of foreshadowed that their their first budget in 96 was going to be a pretty brutal one, um, that they were pushing forward with uh, more cuts to um, higher education, but uh, also to quote-unquote reforms of the industrial relations system. And so there was a huge backlash to this. And actually, um, what Luke here kind of points out is that they kind of created a bit of a perfect storm because the trade unions resisting the industrial relations reforms were also able to kind of link up with various social movements that were building around resistance to various aspects of the you know, planned cuts. And so they were able to present a pretty effective united front and get together uh, what was a fucking massive rally on, uh, on the lawns of Parliament House. So, Ben, do you want to tell us what happened on that fateful day? <laughs> well, depending on who you talk to, and it says more often than not, it depends, it actually says more about their politics and in terms of what they really think about democracy and spontaneity. If you listen to one line, was basically, oh, well, we had this huge, amazing demo, demo. Uh, it was a massive turnout from people around the country, from all sorts of different contingents, from different movements, as well as, you know, obviously broadly, but overwhelmingly under the banner of the, the unions coming together with Canberra. And these terrible people ran off and rioted at Parliament House and wrecked it for everyone. And that's why we lost. That's that's why ultimately in 96, that's, you know, why the Labor movement and the union movement couldn't do anything afterwards, yeah? yeah. Um, I've, I've even heard some people I've, I've worked in the past talk about, oh, you know, just people were drunk and um, mm. blah. Um, what's, what's very clear, if, um, Luke, yeah, it'd be interesting if they're, if they... Um, have they computerised Luke Deere's thesis from 96? Uh, it's What's a that? long article based on the thesis, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I mean, we should put it up, but it's yeah, worth a link read to it. Really, yeah, we'll put know. a link in the description of this episode. Yeah, but, but, but I think the thing about that rally for, for me and other people involved in it was absolutely a wonderful day. It was a fantastic day. There were three, effectively three marches that converged on Parliament House in Canberra. The Parliament House, the new Parliament House buildings, I was called is deliberately designed to actually intimidate and dwarf any assembly out the front of it. Yeah. Um, you literally need, you know, three to 5,000 people to field, um, fill one of the first sort of segment designated protest areas of the joint. Yeah, it's massive. So on that day, you know, you can talk, look at the various estimates, but I'm confident in saying like there were probably a good over 40,000 people who, who attended on the day. Uh, the march I participated was one of the feeder marches, and it was one for the university students kicked off at ANU. There were look, huge numbers turn up to that. It was hard to know. We then picked up, uh, met with other students as well as a, a very large contingent of University of Canberra students and even people from... By that time, there was a momentum that had been built up in 96 against what Howard was planning. There was... Um, basically, there were a couple of thousand students who then... Marched off and then connected with, oh, who do we connect with? We connected with the CFMEU, the construction union, and, oh, who is that? The uh, First Nations people, they're the uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders people. Now. Very big contingents each, obviously a couple of thousand uh, for each one. So you had this sort of weird march heading over, and I think Luke describes it well, but my, my take of it being the march kicks off, it's going close to the um, the separation between people being directed to go uh, sit 
turn the march around and assemble to the back of the. By this time, the rally's you know well and truly going on. It's big. It's massive. So this is the, um, this contingent is it's yeah. now rolling up to Parliament House, up the big rolling up Parliament House, big ones up there. there. Lot, there's a there's a thin blue line going on. Mm-hmm. Um, the cops at the the police at the, at the front are starting to get. The, it was led um, Indigenous people at, continue at the front. There's some um, altercations going on. Don't even know. I got no idea what happened there. Yeah, there's a bit of confusion of sudden, very, about very, it, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, because there's, there's a confusion sort of as to what happened. Yeah, why basically the the route it was diverted, basically. Yeah, basically. And so what happens was is the police freak and people are coming up and there's no space. And then all of a sudden, next thing you know, there's police running towards the security forces are running towards the, the Palm House entry. And what is any any good, you know, <laughs> any, good, any good activist seeing, seeing the police do running, um, yep. let's run too. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So what then happened for, for most of the day is probably a couple of thousand people were involved in this very militant uh, rugby scrum involving the, at the doors of Parliament House. Yep. Uh, yes, there was a gift shop uh, run by a government employee who they love talking about as a small business person. So that was trashed. Riding's, I regard riding as actually throwing punches and all the rest of it. This was linked us, push, push, push. They'd push, we'd push, I'd push, we'd push. It went on like that for hours. People would get pushed through, they'd break through and then find themselves isolated in the Great Hall and go, ooh, ooh okay. And there was enough, not, not enough security there that they actually had to release people in dribs and drabs. I knew people who were fed back and fed themselves, but oh, yeah, I promise I won't come back. They'd come back and join <laughs> But, but the way you'd carry on, you, you would think there was, you know, punches and stones and, you know, there wasn't. It, it really was quite tame. You know, yeah, it was, you know, argy-bargy, blah, but it was, it was I played in football scrums, a lot, a lot more rough than that. But, um, yeah, it was, it was a bit, it's pretty interesting. It was then used, the conservative and the right, the right used what happened there because it was basically smashed up in the end when the police decided we've had enough of this. Yep. They um, pulled battens. And they charged this. They charged the line with batons. And the minute they all pulled batons and started coming at the people, everyone ran. And that was it. But then the way I was placed in the, you know, I have a friend talking about the time, driving back, thinking, oh, it was a really beautiful day. We had an awesome day. Having a phone call from his um, then very, you know, hardcore labour um, girlfriend at the time saying, what have you fucking done? What have you done? And it was like, because he was in the far left, it was like, what do you mean? What? What, what? Like, what are we doing? What are you talking about? But basically, the way it was very much, very quickly, the narrative was basically the union movement and you know anyone who participated uh, were presented as thugs, mm-hmm. blah, and the union leadership completely capitulated. Uh, not just capitulated, they actively went to find people that they could get images of that participated, particularly if they were union-employed staff and they were sacked. Yeah? Uh, there were people lost their jobs having participated in what had gone up at the doors of Parliament House. There was also, you know, Labor Party people were sort of, you know, being pretty awful to, to mm-hmm. others about, you know, for, you know, being involved in it. And people would give it back too, but whatever. It was just, yeah, it was an interesting, the sad thing about it was the, I mean, I think it's the great betrayal. There, there you got Jenny George, who was, you know, mm-hmm. the, the big leading light, you know, former Communist Party um, yeah. from way back in the day, blah, blah. There she was uh, denouncing everything and not actually able to articulate and say really what should have been, I don't know, my take on yeah. saying we don't condone what happened, but people are very angry and they're very angry because the government wants to cut hundreds of millions out of community services, out of health, out of education, you know. Yeah. He's going to smash the, then trying to wreck the unions that protect. We could have kept going. 
Instead, what happened out of that event is um, the Labor movement and the Labor Party uh, went into this period of um, do nothing, uh, minimalism. There was the heyday of the, the small target stuff. Mm. Uh, which which basically meant it left that mood, that opposition to die. Uh, there literally was in the ACT a rule going on with the Trades and Labor Council there at the time that there was to be no protests up at Parliament House. I think, I think we had to like, it was almost like 12 months or over, over a year and a bit before anyone dared to have an, have an event up at Parliament House. And it took a couple of years. He still had these idiot union bosses worried about people wanting to go and mm. do what I don't know, particularly when you turn up to a media stunt, like, you know, what, what 50 of us, we're going to go and storm Parliament, you're an idiot, yeah. you know? But, yeah, it was just just um, bizarre. Mm. There's some stuff, actually, this is an interesting passage in um, Luke Deere's uh, history of the, of the events. It's quite illustrative of the, the huge gap, I think, in the attitudes of the ACTU leadership and the, the rank and file present there. Not just the trade unionists, but yeah, yeah the, um, the students and um, the Aboriginal contingent there. So <laughs> this is a um, Luke Deere. Uh, the official speeches were not widely covered in the press and only brief excerpts are documented. However, the speakers were unanimous in their opposition to the government's policies. Kim Beadsley, who was a, at the time the ALP leader, and the Green Senators, said they would continue to reject the workplace relations legislation outright. Amid cries of don't sell out from demonstrators, Cheryl Kerno, who was the leader of the uh, Democrats, promised that the Democrats would make the legislation, quote, fair at the end of the process, end quote. From the platform, uh, Jenny George said that workers were relying on Labor and the minor parties to defend their rights by defeating the government's proposals in the Senate. And so, you know, basically the idea, um, the strategy for combating this um, legislation and this budget uh, was going to be lobbying these sort of independent senators and the, um, yep. the uh, small parties. Um, and that was their main method for combating this like, attack on the working class. Sorry, that was my own commentary, by the way. I was not, yeah, <laughs> I should have mentioned that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, um, well, Luke could say yeah, the same yeah. thing, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, each time, he, this is back, back to Dia, he says, um, uh, each time George mentioned defeating aspects of the government agenda, she was greeted with a huge cheer from the protesters. The need for community support for senators was an important emphasis uh, of George's address. George's message to the minor party senators was that the Australian community will support you in your efforts to defeat this legislation. Interrupt, interrupting the official speeches, Davy Thomason, a CFMEU organiser from Adelaide, climbed onto the stage and demanded to speak. The incident was widely reported. His face was bloodied and he spoke while shaking a police riot shield, which is fucking pretty badass, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. He said, brothers and sisters, I want to first acknowledge that we're on Ab Aboriginal land to begin with and that as the CFMEU and other organisations from the construction division, a hundred of us have gotten into our house. Look what we got from the coppers. And we have to remember, it's going to be a long haul, but these people up here will never defeat us. We have to remember that. Workers United will never be defeated. The front rows cheered him. Jenny George looked devastated. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and, like that's a perfect yeah. example, yeah. Uh, look, I do remember I remember seeing that. I mean, I obviously didn't see it, but that, that was, um, it, it's really said it all. But up to that point in 96, it, there had been um, kicking off in the early stages of 96, there had been strikes going off. There were, you know, there was a lot of, lot of the big unions at the time were talking about industrially taking on the laws, while at the same time the ACTU and plenty of other more conservative leaders were very much of this, um, uh, it was called the Senate strategy, influence the minor parties and we'll get away with this, you know, we'll be okay. Uh, it was a disaster. And I always find it ironic. They're there pointing for their, for their defeat and their 
generational defeat that it was because it's given us a legacy which has never been addressed um, completely. Um, they would turn around and they'd blame, well, they'd blame social, they'd blame the trots, mm. you know, which is sort of, in, in, you know, nonsensical um, sort of thing to do, um, you know, rather than actually, like, look at, well, what was the situation at the time, what had actually ha- went down, what had happened, uh, they went immediately for the, the easy way out with this one. But not only that, they went and hid in their little holes, they, they, which may have been their plan all along anyway. To like, we'll have this big rally, we'll have this big demo, and then have some coffees and teas up at Parliament and lobby, you know, Shell Kernow, and everything's going to be on my right, Jack. I mean, the, the ACTU um, is, yeah. it's still, they're using the same terrible still strategies. They're still, still doing, doing They're still telling yeah. their members, uh, go make a Twitter account and tweet at uh, Darren Hinch and tell him about how, yeah. you know, yeah. whatever. <laughs> Look, I mean, I mean, yeah, yeah, and there's definitely, there's, there's, uh, fine if people want to play in that world and do that go go for it but this idea that you're going to fundamentally change society through sucking up to uh electoral representatives is is a bit of a joke uh if you can't keep them accountable and they keep accountable it's got to be down to where's power power's in the workplace they've lost they've completely lost that idea Mm. Uh, and that that, that's goes part of the way as a defining thing as to why um the far left well the socialist groups uh, well, in Canberra and elsewhere around the country, enjoyed some more success. Um, we then had the p- perversity of, of Hanson coming on the scene in, in late '96, uh, and then in '97 kicked off some incredibly uh, militant protests around the country uh, involving thousands. And Hanson's One Nation tried to set themselves up, uh, a populist far right organisation, but they tried to set themselves up in metropolitan um, cities, and they were roundly ran out of town in some states, never to appear again. Uh, but those protests were were big. They were militant. They were the socialists were the, were the key to people organisations running and organising the protest. Obviously, with other people involved, fine. But the, it was weird the arguments of the day between the DSP and the ISO. It was one of um, oh yes, we'll we'll have a rowdy protest out the front, but we can't shut them down. Uh, whereas the ISO had, had this um, probably a bit you know a bit too much copied from the, the European sister uh, experience which is um you know no platform for fascists and and uh we should um deny them a platform um type thing i think it's a bit of a halfway really i mean i think practically at the end of the day what really happened when those big protests which were really huge like there there was a massive one over a thousand odd people on a icy cold minus whatever night in um in 97 at the press club in canberra that one like people were pretty much voted with their feet in terms of what they wanted to do yes they were prepared to be now noisy but they also wanted to disrupt them um you know i think was, was what happened and that's part of the reasons like i think the iso argument at the time was an interesting one because they talked about delineating between soft racists and the hard ones and the soft ones were the ones of saying who might have been going, oh, well, I broadly, you know, think she sounds sensible. I'm coming out for a look or maybe not feeling confident enough in the past in their own little homes to, you know, come out. And that was one of the part of the success of the, the, I guess, the far left because it was literally like, don't make it respectable. And for a while, it wasn't respectable to, to follow those, those organisations. And it's sad because I think that's actually sadly one of the legacies that hasn't quite been filled enough by the successful, successful groups that are around today is that we still have these populist far-right mobs and even, you know, open fascist organisations running around in Australia. And I don't think we see that in the level of uh, necessarily of, of mobilisation 
large mobilisation. Well, I think it's really. it's really interesting that uh, my view on that is that the only people who take it seriously enough are unfortunately these like you know lifestyleist left com or anar- like anarchist left yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, who are interested in street fighting but mm. not really in much else, not in organising. You know. Yeah, we used to. There's uh, some of the Europeans call them um, squatters, and it was a it was a term they termed the squad. There were the old KPD, the Communist Party of Germany, had uh, oh no, a massive millions strong organisation. They had a, a really militant street fighting wing um, who would you know protect their rallies and events and stuff, but also would go and attack Nazi events and. Um, but the problem they found was that they got too obsessed with street fighting as opposed yeah. to actually trying to mobilise sure thousands more. I'm sure it's more really like, intoxicating, know. right? I'm sure it's... Oh, really, yeah. You know, the adrenaline yeah. is fucking great. Yeah. Um, I've yeah. Yeah, um, been involved in brief skirmishes and stuff at various things. Um, and, yeah, it makes you feel good. It makes you feel extremely good. Uh, but there's oh, yeah. a danger that you can definitely get caught up in the culture of street fighting and, and whatever and become obsessed with, you know, countering um, fascist yeah. organising uh, and waste all of your time doing that and not do any of your own organising. No, that's right. Well, the the point is to mobilise, you know, mass mobilisation, not small, small to go and, you know, let's go and organise a rumble, basically. Yeah, that was was interesting. And look, that was, that kicked off uh, in Canberra. That was a pretty big deal that went on for years, pickets and stuff, mostly driven out of town. I guess the big key peak stuff, which gets us to that, um, you know, I guess the socialist alliance type thing is, is what happened for the socialist left is probably 2001 is the, the peak of their influence in terms of what's, what's going on. Mm. In 99, uh, there was a World Trade Organization conference mm. held in Seattle in the, in the United States. Uh, and it had, for the first, for US, it was quite significant because it was quite a considerable uh, mobilization but it was also very militant and mm. it was not just militant in terms of the usual suspects but they had organized quite considerable numbers of people across different sort of campaigns and politics and stuff like that to come together around this big nasty world economic forum uh, sorry world trade organization meeting to attempt to shut it down and, and they really did disrupt it and around the world for a lot of um, already radicalized or you know it was an inspiring thing so in Australia, when the news came that the World Economic Forum would be holding a, a, a summit, welcomed by the then Labor Premier at the time, Brax, it was greeted as a huge opportunity for, um, for the socialist world. Well, in the hands of the media, off we go. That was, look, it was massive. The first day, there were, uh, it was a three-day event. On the first day of that event, which was the most successful one, in excess of 10,000 people shut down every entrance of the World Economic Forum, effectively shut down Crown. Plaza. Other people know more about the nitty gritties of the, but the disruption was massive. Of course, huge disruption to the to the meeting to a big embarrassment of the state and federal governments to those um, corporations and governments that had sent people there. Uh, it mobilised, yeah, thousands of young and old and you know people from all sorts. And it was incredibly militant and uh, pretty amazing day. Um, the next, there was also a really big uh, union rally as well, which came down at one point. Like, there literally were thousands involved in the, over the three days. Uh, the second day was in the morning was pretty, um, mainly noted for its brutality, um, really horrible um, police baton charges into into pickets because uh, the day before the, the um, non-violent direct action stuff, which basically involved le- leaking arms and, you know, using your body as a dead weight. Um, yeah, well, they worked out how to get around. They just bashed the crap out of people with batons, mm. and, and that's what cleared it. Um, so, you know, yeah, but 
the, the politically it was a really significant event and it was something that the far left was able to yeah build huge networks out of mass recruitment like literally you know huge numbers of people um, signed up yeah so 2001 is when May Day um, takes on a, a huge weird thing um, they effectively around the country May Day actually came a, a day of militant protest for the first time in decades where uh, targets were picked mainly stock exchanges in, in Australia and in Canberra we I think we did the you know, well and truly above the curve we we picked the mining industry house which is the peak lobbying advocacy mob for the mining industry yeah. and by that time I mean you know the mining industry I mean, mining industry in Australia I mean, it's got a horrific records if you put down you couldn't find targeted most you know worthy bunch of mongrels whether it was anti-worker anti-union exploiting the crap out of um, developing countries destroying the planet's environment you know you beauty um it was just amazing at the time though that we came up with that in canberra and elsewhere they were scratching their heads and didn't quite understand why we're doing it like why are you turning up to a lobbying outfit it's like well actually this is what they represent this is what they're doing if you want to do it pick a symbolic target this is it um that was really successful in this town we had a really awesome day uh mining industry out there now it's well and truly advanced that we're going to open on the day <laughs> but we still had you know lots of people turn up and music and uh, still you know a bit of you know mock sort of linking hands and things like that and people were really energized by it and that sort of led the way for things in canberra i guess in terms of um we had uh the massive turnout um, only recently beaten by i think the young people's climate action protests of last year where in excess of ten to 15,000 people man- massively filled um, most of Civic uh, against yeah. the, the first war in Iraq. Uh, we then had thousands of people participate in a, a mass protest against um, George W. Bush's visit in 2004. That was really huge. So that's that's the peak. And out of this sort of peak of those sort of things going on, we get to what I would call it's like Brit pop killed grunge. You know, socialists outside of the, the main street parties were, were ultimately defeated. And I think there's a few reasons why they okay. were defeated as a project. So um, how does the advent of the Socialist Alliance come out of the M1 May Day protest? So I think through, after there'd been considerable, you know, quite a few years of those groups having to work together, some of the issues have been worked out, even though they, the group, those groups always suffered from a degree of sectarianism. What the, there were people who were looking at what was happening overseas in Europe. It was felt that out of these big conference, and there was a number of years, a couple of years in the early thousands of conference protesting was almost like it was a almost become a, a an annual event with different things you'd go and turn up to. People would go overseas to go and participate, and um, I'm going to go to Prague, you know, mm. for whatever economic, you know, nasty neoliberal thing is going to be on, or um, you know, the people would do that. And out of that, it helped cohere. More and more people were linking up together and talking about alliances and things like that. Mm. Um, I think people were looking at, uh, I know the ISO was looking at what was going on with the, the United, in the UK with the uh, respect formation. Uh, they, they got involved in that. Uh, and in Australia, the, the groups like the DSP were also looking at um, what electoral formations elsewhere that were benefiting uh, socialists were able to cohere and be involved with other um, radicalising, you know, campaigns and groups and bring them under electoral sort of, um, you know, banners. So what happened was you, you had the, the creation of what was called the Socialist Alliance. It was it was created as a, uh, it was meant to be a, a membership finance organisation independent of the groups that were the founding groups. Uh, there were 22-odd groups. Sometimes, I don't know, some people quote more, but whatever. Um, it's every little group that you could think of and, you know, some some interesting um, little outfits. 
mm. um, signed up to this thing. But look, within less than 12 months, it had accumulated over 3,000 um, members. It was it was able to actually recruit people outside of you know, what had previously been the practice of, of revolutionary groups who had a very different routine. There was some rec- recognition, I think particularly the ISO recognised that being in the alliance should mean a different tempo of activity uh, as well as very much saw, and I think the DSB agreed on this bit, that there was an opening um, between, I guess, Labor's pathetic, uh, parliamentary federal Labor's pathetic leadership mm. in not coming out of 96 and then 98 and, you know, really not not much going on here and the greens at the time who still only just starting to benefit from the the implosion of the democrats there was a space there and there was a limited window and during that time it went on to to you know get things done i've got this um from um from andy uh slack bastard who you know a rigorous chronicler of um group skills of the left and if you know this blog it's really good he says s11 was read as constituting evidence of an important political development and uh, emergence of both a new layer of young people from which it was possible to recruit and the existence of a broader dissenting population from which it might be possible to develop a left-wing electoral alternative. As it happens, SA was wrong on both counts. In general, the perhaps 30,000 or so individuals engaged in the S11 protests proved on the whole to be uninterested in joining their comrades in the various Leninist groupuscules. And the SA's uh, electoral performances um, at federal elections in 2001, 2004, 2007, and a number of state elections have been desultory. So, you know, that like moment, hopeful moment where it looks like there was going to be, you know, the possibility of creating a, um, mm. a more self-consciously socialist alternative to the Labor Party didn't work yeah. out. Yeah, look, I mean, that's like historically you go, yes, that's right, Andy. However, my argument would be that when it was set up, until 2000 when it ultimately um like i think people just go look it was a project set up in 2001 and it was dead by that time it had its conference in 2005 when the the democratic socialist party um managed to win a vote um, where it imposed its newspaper the green left weekly as the newspaper of the socialist alliance so and that fundamentally came down an argument about is this a a new an electoral party an alliance, if you like, versus are we just going to see another reorganisation of the far mm. left under the leadership of one group who gets to, you know, be the winner, the victor? Because the DSB, uh, like, was really characterised by its, like, intense commitment to democratic centralism and that they basically oh, yeah. brought, they brought that to, as a, you know, as a Leninist party, have brought that with them to, mm. um, to yeah. SA. Yeah, look, I, they fundamentally, they destroyed the project. I mean, it still gripes me today that they're still a, you know, tiny grouplets that are, they've got nothing in common with what, what there potentially was by 2004 uh, to actually uh, build something um, sustainable into the future. You know, they they destroyed it and they destroyed it because I wanted to just re- recreate its own image. Um, and sadly, too many people went along with it. I'm not saying it was a stack, but they were in a much better and a more tightly organised position to go and win the argument at the conference that happened that, that wrecked it, you know. Yep. Uh, and then it was, that was, yeah, it was the end. Because by that time, a couple of groups had gone, uh, but they just speeded it up. So the ISO after 2000, of course, like, well, you know, well, 2005 was like, well, this is a waste of time. We're going to have to leave. Like, you know, let's go. Except the DSP since that time is, uh, well, what's, whatever it is, whatever those groups are now, I barely know. 
um, still continues to run around with the corpse around its neck, saying it's the Socialist Alliance. It's like the alliance of what? Like, there is no alliance. It's the Democratic Socialist Party who've rebadged themselves, you know? Um, that's what happened there. The other thing that Andy's wrong about is, like, 2004, it was a shock to the system for a lot of, a lot of people. How's 2004 went? But I think it's actually more comes down to, to mechanics. Like, I can't remember that. Look, I didn't, I didn't particularly like the candidate that we had in 2004. Like, it doesn't matter what I thought of the candidate. Like, he's all right. But the DSP, really, you know, they, we didn't really kick up enough of a stink. They got their guy to be the candidate. I'm fine. But the problem we had in Canberra when we ran him in, in the seat of uh, Farrah. It's called Fennin now, but... It was Farrah, yeah. Yeah, Farrah. We couldn't, weren't able to get registered in time to actually be on the ballot paper, uh. right? So we were down as independent. So I, I think, and from memory, that was the same problem the Alliance actually had all around the country in 2004. It didn't actually appear on the ballot paper as Socialist Alliance, right? That's one of my ones with, oh, it did really bad. It's like, well, actually, no. If you look at... I what it did like well they managed to turn out candidates in quite a you know quite a sizable number of seats okay that's cool weren't on the ballot paper still campaigned and i know in this town like we we covered 70 voting we covered 70 booths you know we were rivaling labor at the time in terms of number of number of people we had at, at booths you know mm. you know poor old greens were you know they had nothing compared to what we had in terms of like having mobilised activists on the ground to appear booze in 2004. Broadly, we were set up, I think, in 04 to continue to do something. But um, the politics of, you know, the the, the, part of the groups inside were just not, not capable, not fit for purpose for actually what the, the world having changed. And I think ultimately um, I mean, what we see is the eventual winners out of this are basically people who gravitated to the Greens and a reforming uh, Labor left, if you like. Um, who were, in many ways, influenced by, by socialists, I think, in many, many ways, um, uh, in terms of, their, I guess, I don't know, maybe some um, getting some ideas and they go and drive more of their own activity, I, I would argue. Like, in terms of the defeat stuff, I mean, that's, that's the alliance done. I think the reason, like, yeah, okay, it's, it's interesting, despite, you know, the, the size of the drug you keep saying, like, they do really did. Um, kick goals well and truly above their, their size and influence, you know, like the DSP and the ISO both had that sort of Leninist stuff going on, which is i.e. too many people, you know, gone and um, drunk the Kool-Aid um, of uh, Vladimir Lenin's What Is To Be Done pamphlet from 1901, a pamphlet that is written targeted at revolutionary activists who are uh, in an environment of being shut down every month or six weeks by the <laughs> secret police, right? So when he was writing what is to be done, he was talking about trying to create a hardcore, tight organisation that used a newspaper to telegraph their views and to organise and use the telegraph in the in their, in their newspaper to organise, right? Cool. And the whole point is trying to apply that type of organising model onto the 90s and then by the time when you get in the early thousands where by the yeah since the early thousands when we, we actually finally get social media not able to deal with it right so the the hyperactivism activism is one part of it but also i don't think they weren't weren't ready to deal with you know the way in which media changed mm. but hyperactivity of the dsp and iso was like it was pretty amazing like they would have the DSP always consistently had probably around 350 or 400, between three and 500 members at any one time. The ISO probably, you know, really did hover in the, in the high 300s. It occasionally kicked up more, like, you know, some big events. It had, so with S11, I can remember hundreds of people joining uh, in the World Economic Forum. And literally were like, okay, overnight we've gone from 300 to, you know, 600 people. 
The problem was the routine and the activity that the far left had their practices was incapable of, of actually bringing in, you know, consolidating and holding new people yet. So, so, so IRS has to be alienating to new members? Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, like, I mean, to give you an example, like, um, you're expected to sell a newspaper every week. You're expected to, to attend what were, for the most part, um, weekly branch meetings. You know, those branch meetings could, could go for, like, at least an hour, you know, sometimes more, right? On top of that, well, maybe it might have been a fortnight. But anyway, there was always some type of meeting like that. Uh, on top of that, you're expected to attend, um, you know, campaign and organising committee meetings, you know, with, with other groups, right? And there'd be caucusing involved before attending it. So, you know, it was the education campaign or the, you know, refugee rights thing or anti-war thing or whatever. You know, the caucusing was all about trying to um, cohere an argument to win a particular position uh, of the unaligned. You know, that's what I literally call the unaligned. So if you weren't in a group, you're, the, you're basically the audience. So I was all this sort of posturing or whatever around these people who were radicalising, I guess. It was just kind of bizarre. Mm. And then you had the, um, the, the selling of the newspapers, like... Yeah, okay. I mean, you know, we we do workplace sales. We'd sell newspapers out the front of workplaces. You'd sell at newspapers and rallies. I mean, at rallies and demonstrations. Uh, there were there was always uh, weekly, you know, poster ads because you know you didn't just put stuff on social media. You you would have to go and put posters up everywhere about your meetings. And you'd tack often you'd tack those to to onto um, paper sales. You know, and meetings is when you'd go either before the meeting or whatever you'd go into a poster. Room. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I've spent years teaching people you know, and knew how to make cornflour glue, but haven't needed to do so for a while now because, I don't know, strangely enough, it's actually not a... I think it's a nice little icing on the cake medium. Like, if you actually get posters around and you've got a social media presence, that's kind of cool. That's that's nice. Mm. That's a lost art. Uh, I think there's a point to it. But, yeah, look, in the mid-'90s, like, uh, if you were part of a revolutionary group... I know myself, I was spending anywhere between 12 to 25 hours a week doing um, stalls, picking, oh yeah, doing stalls, sticking up posters, going to meetings. And and for a lot of the 90s, there were times of the year between autumn and winter, like you almost had some, there was always an action. There was always, something was happening, at least every fortnight, there were, you know, you'd regularly almost plan a calendar around the first six months of the year of rallies and protests and whatever. Like it was a very active time. So... Um, most, um, but for normal people, <laughs> um, you don't turn up the meetings every week, mm. you know? I mean, protests. Know, I, mean I remember like, when Socialist Alternative yeah. was organising these, um, the, the rallies around, around the bushfires, right? Um, yeah. well, they were, they were planning where well, weekly every Friday, uh, they, I think there was like four in a row that they did. Um, they got great numbers on the first one and then just petered out from there, obviously. Um, because yeah. people burn out. They just don't want to, um, they don't want to go to weekly um, marches or, um, you know, meetings or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, there's got to be um, a point to try to continue to, to do them mm-hmm. and you can do too much of them. Um, and I think, I, I, but I mean, sadly though, we've seen that with the, so the refugee rights movement in Canberra, the Refugee Action Committee, which is funnily enough, that was something that, that was a creation of, the um, socialist left, in particular, is the ISO who, who set it up. They, they, you know, some people want to denounce me and say, "Oh no, no, it's not true." It's like, no, it's true. Like, uh, Phil Griffiths and Tanya McConville and a couple of key people were the key people who set that group up um, uh, way back in the in the late nineties. Um, to the listeners, know, if you'd like to dispute the origin of the uh, Refugee Action Collective, you can now email us at dolcapital at gmail.com. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. 
That's D O A P I T A L at gmail.com. Oh, there you go. Yeah. yeah, if you can correct me with that, but I'm, you know, it was socialists who set that thing up, mm-hmm. Refugee Action Committee and Camp. Yeah. reason why I'm talking about it is quite successful. It's, it's almost, look, it's a respectable group now, right? Mm. But the thing about it was they've almost come up with a formula for the last couple of years, like, oh, okay, we'll have two big rallies a year. Uh, yeah, we might do a couple of sort of vigil type things in the middle of the meeting strip. And then we're going to have a couple of really big, big public meetings. Mm. That's fine. That, that'll that'll just probably be enough to sort of you know keep you going, and it has kept them going for years. But I guess with that one, they've just never been able to work out how to deal with the political power bit. And it's like, okay, well, there's different ways to challenge power. It's like um, you can either try to drive into a workplace somewhere, which is really hard hard to do, or you can just try to just lobby politicians, which you know might be easier. But still, you're still hitting they're still hitting their head against the wall in many ways. But I'm, I'm digressing here, but um, yeah, that that level of activity was was hyper. It was nuts, um, really. The the DSP were even worse. The IS that literally they had they were so tight knit that people were um, they were financed by. You had members who um, paid pretty quite amazing new membership dues, but then you had members who were basically full time organisers for them. Yeah. And they would literally spend, they owned property or rented property in offices where they would use as an organising space. And then they would sell out the front of, you know, they would sell every day. Like, not, not like the ISO were like lightweight compared to the, huh. the DSP in terms of, you know, paper sales. Like, those guys would be on the streets, you know, uh, numbered like a number of times a day, like, you know, because they had requirements to sort of, you know, sell X number of papers and things like that. And that's, again, going back to that Leninist, Leninist uh, what is to be done? sort of stuff you know there was kind of a point to it but it was also just not not fit for purpose you know like in canberra uh mid to late 90s the iso was at its peak and so was the dsp in the same way but but i remember there were there were rank and file organizing groups in the public sector union as well as in the tertiary union like we had 60 people um, who were members and these were members who did all the, the basic requirements and the, the Labor Party of the, t- of the time was only around 300 odd people, you know, it was that real heyday of how pathetic it was to be in, in the Labor Party. I don't know if you've seen any old stats, but membership was minuscule, mm. really, you know, and that was the difference. Like the, the far left groups, you know, yes, they had their hyperactivity, meant they could actually go and pull things off. But it's unsustainable in the long term, and you're not going to connect to uh, become a mass organisation by having a, a routine that just doesn't match um, what people are able to do. Yeah, the upturn stuff uh, was really quite amazing. The people talk about the upturn. Seattle happened. These conference, um, big mass protests around the world. People fought, swallowed the Kool Aid and thought there were literally going to be a revolutionary ups, upsurge in the early thousands. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, following what the Brits had did, the ISO, for example, and, you know, DSP did their own weird way. Yeah, they thought it was all going to happen. And basically the ISO and they dissolved themselves into um, campaign groups. And then it just became really weird when those campaigns weren't going off. But there were really big political reasons as to why they weren't going off. So, like, the reality is that by 2004, we, we'd, we'd suffered a number of, like, quite big defeats as, as the left, you know. So the big political stuff being the, the war in Iraq, we'd lost it. It was huge. Yeah, it was massive. But without any leadership from um, the union and, and labour movement to say, let's shut down the docks, let's shut down the economy, uh, let's shut down the flights, let's not supply. Uh, in the absence of that, people just went home. And all they got from that was, 
oh, well, we just have to vote for some not better, nicer politicians next time. That was a huge defeat. Um, so that was a defeat for the far left groups who didn't have that connection with uh, organised workers in any sort of meaningful way. Um, but also the, the elections as well. Like, yes, they did not do that and do as well as they thought they would. Mm. Um, you know, but there was potential there. There's that that stuff. And the other the other thing that was also interesting was um, the complete disconnection with how to organise uh, amongst workers, right? Mm. So, well, so I guess the yeah, like uh, at least the um, DSP had that had that, they got that idea, you know, like in the in the eighties was that they stopped what they were doing and went and got into industrial organising, put all, all of these um, university graduates into industrial jobs and tried to get them uh, yeah. organising in in industry, but it didn't last very long. I don't think they committed to it for that long. Yeah, look, I mean, it was a, it's a look. It's interesting, but it's also crazy. You know, mm. they they call it workerism around mm. the place. The 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 Maoist tried that at some point in the seventies, uh, and yeah, the, the the SWP or the DSP, they 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 tried. I, I think mean, the name that I would sort of recognise it was um you know disastrous. So Ian Turner is an interesting example, the historian who. Um, after his work in the peace, Australian Peace Council, doing United yeah. Front work for the CPA, I guess uh, he pissed somebody off. Apparently, he came back from a conference in Europe, and they turned around and said, "All right, you're done with that. Now we want you to go off and um, uh, start organising um, railway workers in the Victorian <laughs> railways." So um, <laughs> he went from he went from quite a lofty, um, dignified yeah, work yeah. for the for the party um, to cleaning train carriages and organising train cleaners. And he was really successful. Um, he was a yeah, very effective yeah. organiser and um, his downfall in that ended up being that um, he had some run-ins with groupers, as he was supposed to, that's what he was there for, yeah. um, and they ended up rat-fucking him getting him fired. <laughs> yeah. Oh, look, I mean, sadly, the, the left is full of... Um, the, the, I, I don't know what... It, it always comes down to accountability. If you don't have um, structures in place that ensure democratic accountability, you're going to have that kind of behaviour go on where... Mm. Uh, those that empower, they'll see someone who might show some talent or um, have some interesting ideas or whatever, and they'll just they'll just do them over because they yeah. regard them as a threat. Yeah. And that's that's what they do, and I'm you know I've seen it so many times. Yeah, look in terms of workplace stuff, boy, look in the nineties and early thirties, they weren't doing that. No one was doing that because they recognised it's yeah. kind of stupid. Because I mean, basically, it comes from a flawed understanding of what is the working class, right? So. If you have this bizarre idea that workers are only those who wear um, blue suits, and, yeah. uh, you know, like you've lost the fucking plot. I mean, sorry, I don't mean to swear, but uh, it's the 21st century. Uh, the defining thing, and Mark Karl gives us a, the framework in which to understand this, if you sell your labour, and it's primarily through selling your labour, as it's the relationship to production and distribution, right, of, of wealth. And I had distribution because it's you know, part of the process. I'm just, you're a worker. Now, a lot of people struggle with this one because they either don't think they, oh, I'm not a worker. Because it's like, well, no, it's it's a relationship to production. The identity thing is, well, that's more to do with politics, isn't it? You know, and yes, even if you sell your labour and you're paid remarkably well, it doesn't necessarily mean you necessarily going to go and be a gung ho about it and want to go and storm the barricade. But at the same time, if you're a well paid worker, um, you might be in a better position to actually go and influence things as well. So. Um, you know, it's, yeah, I always, I don't know, it's just weird people who don't quite understand. It's also always particularly offensive, offensive to people working, you know, the so-called service jobs or whatever. It's like, well, mate, they're, they're jobs, they're workers, you know, like you sell your labour, you work, you know, work in the health um, sector or whatever. 
like yeah it's just kind of it always falls down if you, you only think workers are construction workers well you kind of have no idea what's been going on with the economy the last 30 years like we are a service industry society other than um the very few people who dig iron ore up out of the ground and tell, sell to china to price to go and buy chinese tvs back on like not anymore but you know, like, yeah but I, um, yeah it's interesting because yeah. i suppose part of the reason why um like the industrial working class has had this like privileged position in theorizing and uh, ideas about how, like who you need to be organizing to form the base of your um, revolutionary social movement. Um, yeah. The, I think that the core idea in there is that these are the people who are able to, um, when they stop work, what they're doing is shutting down the, like the main arteries of the entire society, you know, like shutting down yeah. the docks, shutting down the steel mills or whatever, which is all yeah, true. Yeah. But um yeah, one thinks about like, um, you know, we were talking about workerism before, but um, Silvia Federici's like um, involvement in wages for housework, the Italian wages for housework, you know, campaigns. Um, yeah. And yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's definitely, it's a misunderstanding that it's only industrial workers who hold the keys to social reproduction or to the movement of goods yeah. and the, the functioning of society. Um, yeah. Like you could affect just as drastic a shutdown by having all of the women who do unpaid um, domestic labour um, go on strike. Yep. It would fucking shut everything down. Well, I mean, look, I mean, I, I just think um, that example, we've also got the example of, of people who work in re, um, sectors of uh, retail, like the supermarket workers have been told you're essential, you know? Mm. <laughs> like, right. you know, it is it is a perverse thing with the current COVID stuff that is actually like, oh, these people are saying, well, yeah, they always were. It's just, you know, we've li been living in a society that's derided people who who provide service, who, who actually fundamentally you can't, without someone who's going to provide you with, um, you know, the, the service to get your food and, and whatever, you're going to be in trouble. And without the people who go out and help look after those that are sick and family, you're in trouble again. Like, um, my hope is that in the coming period, we're going to see more pronounced um, industrial and political demands for, for greater recognition of pay and, and mm. conditions for people in those sectors is um, worth far more than, you know, the, the way they've been treated previously. But anyway, that's the left. Being, the, yeah, you're right. You're yeah. right, you're right. But I was going to say, that's the left being, you know, it's, it's inf being infected by the commodity fetish, I think, and privileging yeah, yeah. Um, bonds of labour that result in the production of commodities, right? Yeah. Whereas, like you were saying, yeah. the reality is you're a, you're a worker if your relationship to the means of social reproduction are such that you have a, you don't have access to them unless you sell your labour. That, that's what makes yeah. it. It's not what you not what but, kind of labour you do. It doesn't matter. But it's also yeah. I, mean, I forgot to add this: the control. Mm. Like if you don't have control, and it's not even you know people get confused. They talk about the ownership of means that the means of production, right? And they might insert distribution, right? It's also control. So that's the only, that's the whole thing. When I mentioned Tony Cliff um, earlier on, we're talking about state capitalism. Um, if workers don't actually have control of what they supposedly own, well, geez, well, obviously it's not socialism for a start, is it? It's not democratic, but that's the key thing in terms of understanding uh, economies and, you know, some of these interesting um, ideas around uh, cooperatives and stuff. Like, it's nice if we say, oh, well, we're, we're an, uh, you know, worker-owned cooperative. It's like, well, is it democratic though? Who controls it? Like, that's the, that's the key. But I mean, I look, getting, I mean, swinging it back around in terms of um, understanding why the far left sort of, well, shot itself, uh, basically executed itself, I think, is partly it's the, it's the hyper uh, un Leninist unrealism. And then it's way to, it was incapable. They had, you know, the, 
the sprouts of getting, you know, people were good little active, good little revolutionaries. They believed in unions and unionism. I'm going to go and do what's rank and file organising. And they get into work and they then quickly discovered that the organisations they belong to are incapable of actually relating to, hey, it takes a long time to get things to get things going. You know, they didn't understand that, you know, to be a workplace leader, to become a delegate, what you have to be respected by your peers for that's your right. hard work. That's, you know, well, that's one got, of the great, the best insights that the CPA, um, like, I think, bring, the, like, a great legacy of theirs is their understanding yeah. that... Um, uh, workers respect workplace organisers who are the best workers and who command respect through their, yeah. their understanding, yeah. their knowledge of the production process they're involved with and their, their ability to actually lead people uh, within the production process before you get to the idea of leading them, you know, in struggle against the ownership yeah. or whatever. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. So you know, highly people, competent. Yeah, you've got to be confident, you've got to be trusted, you know, you've got to understand the work. And you know, assisting being, you know, proactive and assisting your workmates and also having the understanding you just can't blow stuff up, you know, like outside of a revolutionary situation or even if you're moving into, say, an enterprise bargaining round and, you know, you've got protected industrial action, like even then, you, you can't, you've got you to gotta maintain, uh, you don't have to be mates with the boss, but you've got to have, a, you gotta have a, enough of a professional relationship with the employer and their, and their representative so that you can continue to have a job, like, you know, uh, outside of a whatever upsurge, but that they just no idea how to relate to that uh, was what I found and, and found that quite stark. They didn't understand, particularly in the in the early thousands, that um, like in the late nineties, all of a sudden trade unions started um, employing a lot of people from the far left as organisers. And, and interesting, that was partly in many ways it was a bit of a nod to those those activists had come through the eighties and the nineties and you know to that to their ability to go and, you know, organize stuff, right? Okay, cool. But the people running the the revolutionary organizations that they that had, you know, come from, they couldn't quite understand well, why is it, oh you've you've gone and sold out by becoming a union organizer. I was like, well, I don't know myself, it wasn't about selling out. I was just basically like, um, there were unions that had perspectives which was Hey, we want to, we, we're going to employ you to organise do organise rank and file. We want you to organise committees, and we're we're serious about it. There were unions in the early thousands that were, were doing that. They stopped doing it some time ago, but they were serious for a bit. Um, there were river groups that were just completely unable to to relate to that, uh, and particularly there were those that were running uh, the key leaders of revolutionary groups that were incapable of actually dealing with the change like social media, dealing with a trade union movement that was looking around. That's when Gens, you know, they talk of this, this Martin Gens guy speaking mm. at some big, you know, left conference coming up. Oh, like, Marshall Gens, right? Marshall Gens, yeah. you know, well, you know, community organised, blah, blah, blah. Like, they were all scratching around because they were like going, oh, hell, the loans on the wall, what are we going to do? Now, Gens comes along with his stuff, community organised. That's why all of a sudden all these, you know, uh, young socialists and all the rest of us are taking jobs as union organisers around mm. the place. Um is, is partly out of that. Um, the the poor old people who were leading the far left, they had no idea how to relate to that. Probably because they were threatened materially, I think. They were, you know, small, limited infrastructure. Uh, they didn't want to lose their job. I can remember one bloke in the ISO spent an awful lot of time. He was removed from, voted out of their national committee and then spent a long time saying anything to get himself back to that job again. You know, an organisation we've only had only like two pay jobs or something like that. You know what I mean? Like it was just... 
done um, that you know that actually sort of thing it, it, it actually was a demonstration of like an unhealthy organization when you start getting that stuff and i think the problem the dsp is all for what it was that also suffered from that uh was they'd set up their leadership and national leadership in such a way to basically keep those key people in so it didn't really renew itself unless it was yes people mm-hmm. and they also did rather cynically with their structure their paid organizer a lot of them they routinely move them around cities. They move from city to city to city. That's that's not a that's not a militant or you know that's might you can talk, talk about Lenin in 1901, but it's just ridiculous for an organisation in Australia in the 90s. That's like that's that's the behaviour of a sect. You know, nothing cool about that at all. It's because it means that, that people could never fully organise uh, coherency to practice the ideas of what they're being told to go and do, and then say, hey, how did we go? Did it work? No, it didn't. Okay, what ideas have we got? Because I'll never able to actually like, I moved them, <laughs> but they got moved around, so then they're not able to go and challenge it. So the Socialist Alliance it it fails, it collapses for reasons outlined above. What happens to all the people involved? What, what, what where do we go from here? Right. So look for for many. Um, what it is was a case of the you know like the political space had, had shifted, and there were new homes that people could go and inhabit. Yeah. So. For many that went away from far-left organisations in the late 90s onwards, they, they found both the Greens and the ALP nice swimming pools, yeah? They could play with a new audience that hadn't, that hadn't connected with for a long time. It was also coupled with there was a, an influence of influence of 90s activism had on, on young activists and socialists who, who came to view and experience that you could do direct action, you could do militancy, you could do organised protests and rallies and go and do sit-ins and all that stuff. You could talk socialism, you could go and read Marx, you could do whatever. You could also get a job. And you could also have a life without, uh, while being a member of the ALP or the Greens. Mm. And you could do that without the, the sort of the angst and hyperactivity of belonging to a revolutionary group. And oddly enough, a lot of those reasons why there were, there were socialists coming through, younger activists and the like, they, they worked out by playing with people they knew on the far left of like, well, I can still do that. And well, I don't need to go and join an Leninist group to do that. You know what I mean? Uh, well, covered at the same time, there were moves by, you know, small in numbers, but more and more of people trying to democratise the ALP. Uh, and as it went on, there was also people overseas trying to democratise the UK Labor. And, and Australia's got that interesting one of Labor in UK and Labor in Australia, often often in reverse cycles, influencing each other with what's going on. But, you know, obviously down, further down the track, they're, they're calling things very later on in the piece. But there was definitely a movement in Australia to open itself up more. Uh, in a, in, I think an important part of that is, is Canberra's little creation of the Left Labour Club was a case in point uh, at the ANU. Uh, it was created by, uh, you know, a small bunch of young socialists who were influenced by radical groups. And they wanted a space to learn and discuss politics, agitate around and organise around issues. It was deliberately agnostic about members joining the ALP itself, and they acted as a, a while at the same time, and acted as a link to the party because quite a few of the key people were, were ALP members and organised in the ALP itself. Um, it had a broad and open approach, and it had its success because um, uh, because of its broad and open approach, it had um, success. Well, on the one hand, it was. A lot of people were joining it when, when it really set from 99 onwards. It was a big thing that people joined for a little while, for a couple of years, people who were often seen as a clearinghouse. So you didn't have to go and join a, 
a, a, a Leninist socialist group to be in a group. You could just go and boy, join the left Labour club and you were, it was broad. Like, it was like, oh yeah, you're an anarchist. Okay, cool. You know, come and hang out. He was agnostic about those sort of questions, but people who were ALP, you know, focused on ALP stuff were able to recruit out of it, obviously. People who came out of that experience of there being this sort of broad left grouping that they could cohere and, and do things. Um, also, their activism was a lot more um, open and a lot more relaxed. And that meant that they picked campaigns and things that they wanted to do and they'd intervene in the Labor Party around some interesting things. And, and as a result of that over the years in, in Canberra, we, we now have what is, you know, us in Tasmania had the most democratic uh, branches in the, in the ALP in the country. We pre-select our senators, unlike uh, most state <laughs> states and territories um you know we also you know get get have a lot more um active um participation and participation in presecting our representatives and the, the platform and the policies of act labor for example and tasmania as well at different times has also been some of the most left-wing um and they, they, they've definitely benefited from i guess a change of culture of what happened with the unions i guess but that ANU wasn't, the left Labour Club was an important thing. But I mean, I'd say, I don't know, it's very much getting quite conservative these days, but that's just my take. I might just sound like an old man. You always think the younger yeah. ones are more conservative I mean, than what you were. Well, I don't, I'm not active yet, but I've got a few friends who have come out of it or who are still there. But my impression of it is that it's, you know, like many, um, you know, young labour organisations. Yeah, no, it's just um, a real, real shame. I mean, yeah, I, I, I think that the takeout, I mean, it's not careful. It'll, it'll, Things go on picks, um, go in cycles, I guess, sometimes. Like, I mean, maybe, maybe when we get out of COVID, maybe there will be. Uh, we are looking at what could be a, another depression, you know, in terms of the, the economy for Australia. Um, we're looking at what may be um, it's to be decided. Maybe there, there, there's, going to, there's vacuum going on right now. In terms of what fills that is going to be up to what people do with their own activism. Maybe, you know, people on campuses or uh, people who are attracted to radical um, left or socialist politics might take a, a more militant turn. Like militancy doesn't just, um, doesn't have to define being a socialist, but it is an important part of it uh, as opposed to things that we've seen, we've seen, I don't know, more recent past we've seen. Uh, I'm not denigrating it. There's nothing wrong with having drinks with elected senators and, and, and all the rest of it. That's fine. You can do that. But if you're prioritising that over having a campaign and mobilising people outside of yourself to actually try to influence and change a law or change a, you know, the practice of a business or something like that, um, all you're doing is you're just reinforcing all the old bad stuff, which is all about, like you said, it's the uh, wanting to go and work for some, you know, hold someone's handbag, you know, like literally <laughs> and, and not actually... And drink with them and, you know, smile and agree with them. And you're not changing the world there. You might be trying to get, you know, line yourself up for the job in the future, but you, you're definitely not really doing any much practical there. Um, so, look, my take out at the end of the day, socialist groups in the 90s and 2000s were really dynamic. They had leading roles in terms of a lot of the activism and radicalism going on in the, in the 90s and early thousands. And um, they were really important for... Uh, putting up resistance to the steamroller that was the neoliberal militancy of our governments, both under Walker and Keating and then under Howard. And I think in a Canberra, what was interesting about it that it was there was often no one else doing anything, you know, um, taking the initiative to hold actions and activities. And that's part of the reason why those groups had success. And look, and sadly, despite 
you know, times some pretty spectacular events and activities that these, you know, groups organised, they organised themselves into a corner with their very inward, not fit for purpose structures and their activities and, and their outlook. Um, like, you know, they may have want, they like, wanted to talk about the working class, but were just un, didn't have the ability to actually relate to it in a, in a structural way would be, uh, would be my take on it. I'm sure other people would rabidly disagree with me, absolutely. But I think in today today's situation, I'd encourage anyone who's currently in the far left. That, um, and we can talk, I don't know, as we go on with more of these shows at Dole Capital, um, well, I think we're agnostic on the question that you have to go and join Labor. I don't think you do. But I think if you're in an environment, your local community is one where your state branch or the you know uh, there's an opportunity to go and relate to a larger audience and that's always the point if you're a socialist it's better much better to be talking to a whole bunch of other people particularly people that may have a connection to workers in the workplace as opposed to not having that being pure and not having that connection yeah uh, if there's a space to influence people well we'll go and use it go and take it and at the moment in Canberra well being part of the ACT Labor is, is a place you can do that. You can also, yeah, I believe you could probably try the Greens, um, but I, but I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not I'm yet not as convinced about, about them in this town. But I don't know. I mean, I think if you're living in Surrey Hills, you'd probably have more success being in the Greens, yep, you know? or South Brisbane, or yeah, yeah, or you know, that's political party was, or as you know, it's actually um, uh, other people have pointed out, they're like you can do campaign organising without being in a group. Oh yeah, that's fine too. You know, there are. Certainly, and we'd encourage people to get in whatever. I don't think we have a particular, um, I don't know. I mean, I just think being in a political organisation just gives you a way to cohere ideas in a mm. decisive way to go actually go and intervene and try to shape and move and move up more people than just turning up to a, a campaign meeting or a, or a rally or something like that. That's fine. You can go and do that. But how effective you're going to be is, is how being at a party is an, is an effective way to do that. Mm, don't just float around sort of in the wilderness uh, as a sort of independent socialist, which is, you know, fine to be, but, uh, you know, yeah. also get involved with something. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And on that note, I think what we're going to, we're going to have Tim Dobson, who yeah. is a, uh, come along and speak to us on another episode. Uh, and I think we're, we're going to talk socialists in parliament, won't we? That's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The value and the, and the how, the why and the what of parliamentary socialism and try to sort of tease out its strategic value to the left more broadly uh, with Tim, who is uh, a socialist candidate running for ACT Labor in its upcoming territory election, which is happening in October. Yep. So stay tuned for that one at Dole Capital. Yeah, that'll, that'll be fun and interesting. Mm. But uh, yeah, you've been with Ben and... And Jacob. Thank you for joining us. It's been a great uh, episode. Hope you enjoyed it. Um, and we'll... Uh, we won't see you. We won't even hear you. You'll you'll hear us in the next episode. Yeah, and hopefully, not less of me talking. I know we're only mainly doing. Obviously, I'm. I'm that was the, the 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 witness. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You had to you had to drive this one. Was, it was necessary.